Hello and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of Tamriel, and now a proud member of the Robots Radio Podcast Network. My name is Aramithius, and today I'm discussing one of the seminal events in Tamrielic history, which has had representatives from almost every race present and changed the fate of two of them forever. And yet no one seems to be able to agree what those events were. Today we're asking, what actually happened at the Battle of Red Mountain? I want to start this week with a kind of correction from my Origins of Men podcast that was brought up on Reddit. Okora pointed out that some of the early Yorkudan tales of the war with the left-handed elves and Diagna's Ascension have to be contemporaneous with the Merithic era from what we know of them. So the Yorkudans have been around for a good while, possibly not in the form of society that we currently know them, definitely not given that the current society that had the civil war that then led to the Yokudans leaving for Tamriel wasn't around until after a lengthy period of civil war of their own, but the men of Yakuda were definitely around for at least as long as the men of Tamriel or Atmora, whichever way you want to spin it. I also want to say that as usual, that this is my own understanding of the events of the Battle of Red Mountain and not the whole truth of things. We have so many accounts of this particular event that are conflicting hugely and it's definitely not the whole truth of the matter. I will be getting to why in the cast, but I would also absolutely love to hear your own ideas. Please leave a comment wherever you're listening to this or at the blog post at writteninuncertainty.com. And yes, that is a change in domain. I have finally got around to going self-hosted with this, which will hopefully make the whole website easier to customise and more suited to the kind of content that I want to put out. So make sure you check it out, although maybe leave it a bit for me to play with it until I've got it entirely satisfied. And thank you ever so much to my patrons who are making this move possible. And I will also be linking all of the sources that I quote in this cast in that blog post. So please check them out and come to your own conclusions on the matter. This is particularly important with regards to this one, as I will be referencing some accounts of the battle without quoting them directly. The blog post, meanwhile, will list every single source that I can find that mentions the battle in any way, shape or form. And finally, if you've got anything that you want to ask, do please email me at writteninuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to have a more expansive questions and answers part in this podcast, but I can only do that if you send me questions. There will be some at the end, but I'd love to have more. And now, on to what happened at Red Mountain. Red Mountain was, depending on who you ask, either the culmination or the start of the War of the First Council waged between the Kaima and the Dwemer. Exactly when the battle happened is up for debate too. Some accounts have it happening as part of a long simmering difference between the Kaima and the Dwemer, others that it was sparked immediately after an argument between Indril Nerevar and Dumak Dwarf King. 
The most common date for the battle is the 700th year of the First Era, but some sources claim that the eruption of Red Mountain that followed the battle happened in the year 688, so there's some confusion even there. At the end of the battle, the Dwemer disappeared and the Kaima were turned into the Dunmer. Possibly. Some accounts, most obviously Vivek's own account of the battle, have the transformation of the Kaima happening years after the battle, while the Ashlander version of the tale, collected in the text Nerevar at Red Mountain, has the change happening almost immediately as a result of Azura's curse. These events are about all that we can say there's a real consensus on. We have accounts from the Tribunal Temple, Vivek, the Ashlanders, an Argonian, Nordic folk tales, a historical novelist, an imperial scholar, a possibly skooma adult Khajiit, and more, and they all differ to a fairly significant degree. Before we get into the specifics of who did what, who and where and why, I want to pause here and clarify something about a slightly different question which Battle of Red Mountain. We have some information in The Elder Scrolls V that implies that there may have been two. In particular, the seventh etched tablet on the steps of High Hrothgar says this. The tongues at Red Mountain went away humbled. Jürgen Windcaller began his seventh year meditation to understand how strong voices could fail. The text, The War of the First Council, does say that the Nords were at the battle where the Dwemer disappeared, but the common consensus in the community seems to be that Jürgen was around 300 years or so before that, when the Nords lost their first empire in the 416th year of the First Era in the War of Succession. This would then imply that there are multiple battles happening at Red Mountain, although none of the sources we have on the War of Succession mention that a battle took place there. This means one of three things. Either there were two battles at Red Mountain, or that the term Red Mountain mentioned on the tablet refers to something else, like maybe Res Dane as a whole maybe, or that the consensus is wrong and Jürgen was at the battle in the 700th year. I think it's more likely that the tablet is referring to something else. It doesn't entirely sit right with me that Jürgen was at this battle and isn't mentioned anywhere. He's a big enough presence that we'd expect something else to mention him, especially the five songs of King Wolfarth. So for now, I'm assuming that there was only one Battle of Red Mountain and that Jürgen wasn't there. But this isn't entirely satisfactory either. We don't know that the Nords ever referred to Morrowind as a whole as Red Mountain or the Land of the Red Mountain or anything like that, which we kind of expect if that was just a reference to them losing the Empire. So I don't honestly know. And I will say that Jürgen's presence at the Battle of Red Mountain would fit a particular theme in the battle's literary design, which we will get to later. So, to consider the battle as a whole, we have the Dwemer, the Kaima, and possibly others, generally Nords and Orcs, but possibly Khajiit too, turning up to fight at the culmination of a war. The reasons for the war are either general religious differences between the Kaima and the Dwemer, or because the Kaima discovered the Dwemer meddling with Lorcan's heart, which most Kaima would consider to be a profane act. 
given that one of these is just a more detailed version of the other, conflict over the heart feels to me to be the most likely cause of the war. We also have some divergence on how the war was fought. The real Naravar suggests that both sides just marched to Red Mountain and fought there, and that's the whole of the war, whereas the War of the First Council and Naravar at Red Mountain suggest that Naravar outmaneuvered the Dwemer and the renegade house Dagoth and then forced a conclusive battle at Red Mountain to knock out the key Dwemer stronghold. And Naravar at Red Mountain particularly notes that this allows Naravar, the Tribunal, and Vorin Dagoth to sneak into Red Mountain. And some other sources say that as well, but don't bring up the Tribunal. All of the sources claim that something big and important went down at the battle, which caused the disappearance of the dwarves, but exactly what isn't clear. This isn't really helped by the fact that several of the accounts we do have are summaries that don't really go into much depth. For example, while the two main texts talk about the event, Nerevar at Red Mountain and the Battle of Red Mountain will talk about how Kagranak's tools were used on the Heart of Lokan, while others will just say terrible sorceries were used. And even those texts that are detailed are third-hand accounts. In the Battle of Red Mountain, Vivek openly says that Nerevar told him stuff that happened. So it's, Ner it's Vivek narrating a passage to someone else about something he's remembering about something Nerevar told him. This is very removed from what's actually going on. Sermon 36 of the 36 Lessons of Vivek, which is possibly the weirdest of the lot, as ever, um, says that, quote, when the soul of the Dwemer could walk no more, they were removed from this world. The soul of the Dwemer in this case, I think it's pretty safe to say, is the new Midian, who has just fought the Tribunal, who'd gone all Voltron to destroy it. There's no mention of Nerevar being involved, it's just the Tribunal combining into one to smack the new Midian, and killing the new Midian makes the Dwarves disappear. I've said before in the cast on the disappearance of the Dwarves that I think Kagranak is the most likely culprit here as for what actually happened, at least in the first instance, and I'll explain what I mean on that in a second. According to some of the accounts, Nerevar gets instructions from Azura on how to use the tools to make the Dwarves disappear, but being able to pull a complicated piece of metaphysical adjustment off properly in the middle of a siege seems a bit far-fetched to me. If you want more about how this worked or why, please check out my cast on the disappearance of the Dwemer. The claim in the 36 lessons is very much its own thing. It's either an outright lie or something that was made true after the fact, so there is a second retelling and remaking of this battle, which is what I was referring to earlier. One of the things that has been suggested by fans about Vivek is that Z intentionally remade her history after achieving godhood with the heart. That could be possible that Vivek rewrote history to make the tribunal's defeat of the new medium true. This adds even more complexity to the event, which is already a dragon break, pretty much. I've covered this in the cast on Dragon Breaks, but I do think it's relevant to go over here. The idea of the battle being a Dragon Break has been a way for fans to reconcile all of the different versions of the battle into a coherent whole. It generally gets called the Red Moment, or at least that's what 
got picked up on and called in the years following Morrowind's released and is talked about like this by Vivek in Hit Trial, which is a role play that happened on the old Bethesda forums. To quote a fantastic piece from that, but when Vec the mortal reached into the heart, he ceased to be anything except for what he wished to be. The axis erupted. There was an exact cracking, an instant of pure arbis. His hands burnt black by the ever nil of static change, and Vivek the god who had never been had always been. A whole universe swelled up to legitimise his throne, as the old universe, where Vec the mortal still lapped up god's blood, warped itself to accept its new equivalent. And like all things magical, it simply could not happen. It could not be. Red Mountain was the intersection of the is-is-not as it was of old, its centre point, and it did not hold. And so the dragon, having broken, saw fit to heal, turning into the world you know. Except now Vivek the god was alive before his own birth, which had in fact really happened in the death of the last universe. This ties, this is the start right after the quote by the way, this ties right in with the idea of Vivek rewriting her own history and is literally referred to as a dragon break. The term red moment was referenced directly in Sermon 37 as a great howling unchecked, with Vivek being described as a lamp. This is one way of thinking about the battle and why it's so thoroughly inconsistent. We also have a fantastic description of the battle in the Five Songs of King Wolfarth, which seems to be a narrative that actually takes place within the Dragonbreak itself. In particular, we have this passage to quote. Then Wolfarth said, Don't you see where you really are? Don't you know who Shaw really is? Don't you know what this war is? And they looked from the king to the god to the devils and orcs, and some knew, really knew, and they were the ones that stayed. This seems to imply that the appearance of the battle being at Red Mountain, the identity of Shaw and all that stuff, is just some sort of facade. The reason I say that it's taking place in the Dragon Break is that Dragon Breaks are a return to the timelessness of the Dawn Era. This is where Lokan and the rest of the Etada are making and remaking Mundus each Kalpa. That quote, particularly when read alongside Shaw Son of Shaw, really makes me feel like the narrative is presenting the battle as part of a constant struggle to make something out of each Kalpa, a potentially move beyond Mundus to win, as Shaw Son of Shaw says, which I have talked about before in the cast I made on Kalpas. However, there are other possible reasons as to why there is so much uncertainty about what's gone on at the battle, one of which has to do with the way the game was designed. In an interview that was held several years ago, Douglas Goodall said this about the design philosophy of Morrowind as a whole. I like to write a true account and then conceal it among carefully designed false accounts. Ken, that is Ken Rolston, wrote a dozen different accounts, apparently without any personal preference to which, if any was accurate, and ignored the contradictions. This feels like precisely the texts we have about the Battle of Red Mountain. We have multiple accounts that contradict each other and can't really be reconciled. That's probably the best answer to the precise question of what happened at the Battle of Red Mountain, just everything at once. Not just because it's a dragon break, but because it was designed to be irreconcilable, much more obviously than most other things in the Elder Scrolls.
And this intent is also pretty much spelled out in universe by Vivek when the Nereverine talks to here about the battle towards the end of the Elder Scrolls III's main quest line. We have this fantastic line, quote, in my library, I have made available two conflicting accounts of the events of Red Mountain, my own true account and another false account common among the Ashlanders and preserved in the Apographer. I don't care whether you believe my account or not, I leave it up to you to judge which is true. Despite claiming that her own account is true, Vivek basically leaves it to us, the player, to make our own truth and decide. This is one of the things that's led Rotten Deadite and some others to call Morrowind a postmodern computer game. This is also quite evident in how Dagoth Ur treats the Nereverine's reasons of coming to Red Mountain. When you tell him that you're either Nerevar returned and you are coming to defeat him, or you're claiming the power of the heart for yourself, or you're not really sure, you're just here because the Emperor told you to, he doesn't tell the player that any of those decisions are wrong in any way when you get a response. The game very deliberately leaves the truth as something that the individual ultimately decides on. So, is the Nereverine an Imperial plant? Is the Nereverine actually Nerevar reborn? We don't know, that's entirely up to us. I also think that the truth is something that Vivek in particular considers, or at least has considered, to be bad or at least destructive. I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but I'll bring it up again. If you read the 36 Lessons of Vivek, much of the time when truth is mentioned, it's equated with blunt force and violence. And this is most obvious in Sermon 36, where the New Medium's feet are, to quote, destroyed in the manner of truth by a great hammering. In Sermon 31, we have this line. Truth is like my husband, instructed to smash, filled with procedure and noise, hammering, weighty, heaviness made schematic, lessons learned only by a mace. There's similar, less obvious links made throughout all of the, the 36 lessons. So I think that the idea of truth as an absolute is something that Vivek has considered to be dangerous and a violent thing. To tell the truth is to make your reality the case for other people, which can only be achieved through the imposition of violence. That links to the walking ways as well, the formulas to reach heaven by violence. Uh, but I think this tangent has probably gone on long enough already. I will go into more detail on that and some other cast in the future, I'm sure. The other big points of contention in the battle are the slaying of Nerevar and Dumak. I'm going to go over each of these in turn because I think each tells us something specific about the outcome of the battle and what it means. The slaying of Nerevar is, I think, technically the less important of the two, despite its big impact on the plot of The Elder Scrolls III. It feels to me like Nerevar's death is an inconvenient truth for the tribunal that they in the temple have tried to ignore. The temple is a bit more proactive in this, with Nerevar dying of his wounds after killing Dumak in their account, and then giving the tribunal his blessing. That account's called Saint Nerevar, it's very blatantly a piece of temple propaganda. Vivek's own narrative doesn't mention Nerevar's death at all, which is a really interesting gap. It almost feels like the narrative is inviting us to consider other options with that, because we have literally nothing else to go on. and. Given that here account and Nerevar at Red Mountain do match up in quite a few other particulars, it kind of feels like 
we're invited to think that the tribunal killed Nerevar, despite Vivek claiming that Nerevar at Red Mountain is false. Or maybe I'm just projecting my own perspective on that. Please let me know what you think in the comments or drop me an email. I would love to have some more perspectives on this from other people. We also have the hidden messages in the 36 lessons that do potentially confirm the narrative from Nerevar at Red Mountain though. The first letter of each paragraph in Sermon 36 spell out foul murder if you exclude the last line, which is possibly a clue in itself. That line is the beginning of the words is Alm Sivi, which is different from the more usual the ending of the words is Alm Sivi, which is how it is in most of the other 36 lessons. Taken literally then, that means that Alm Sivi is a murder or murderers to clean up the grammar a little bit maybe. The second message is a bit more long-winded, but if you take the numbers at the end of each line in Sermon 29 and apply them to each of the other sermons as they match, because there's 36 lines, 36 numbers in Sermon 29, they spell out, he was not born a god, his destiny did not lead him to this crime, he chose this path of his own free will, he stole the godhood and murdered the whore to talk. Vivek wrote this. Although it should be noted that the narratives that claim Nerevar is murdered do seem like it doesn't actually happen at the battle, but sometime shortly after, with all the consequences that that entailed for the Kaima, most notably becoming the Dunma thanks to Azura's curse. The murder of Dumak is the one that I find much more interesting because it seems to be something that every single race wants to get in on. Exactly who killed Dumak Dwarf King is totally unclear, because a different person does it in almost every single narrative. Nerevar at Red Mountain has Nerevar do it. The Battle of Red Mountain has Nerevar and Dumak kill each other. One version of the events in the Five Songs of King Wolfarth has Wolfarth killed Dumak. In another version in the Five Songs, Dargoth Ur kills Dumak. The Khajiiti tale of Drozira has Drozira killing Dumak. The 36 Lessons has Nerevar kill Dumak with the short blade of proper commerce, which Vivek had used earlier in the sermons to kill Cityface. In virtually all of these, the one who kills Dumak is a representative of the culture that's producing the narrative. I think this is because every culture has some kind of need to be the ones involved in ending the godless Dwemer, trying to claim the glory of doing that for the good of everyone, maybe. Also, one minor point about the Nordic tale. Remember how I said that it was weird that Jürgen wasn't noted as being at the Battle of Red Mountain? I think it would have been entirely appropriate for him to have been written as if he were there, because the Battle of Red Mountain feels like such a seismic event in the history of Tamriel. It's also kind of defining for the Nords, if you believe, the five songs in its own way. And so why someone who had such a huge impact on the history and collective narrative of the Nords wasn't there, particularly if we take into account the idea of the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey dragon breaks, then I really would expect someone as important as Jürgen to actually be there. There's also a possibility that, as a dragon break, the battle has left scars in the subconscious of the whole continent. The longer version of the text, Where Were You When the Dragon Broke, which was posted on the Essential site before the Elder Scrolls 3's release, 
and was then abridged for the stuff we actually got in the game, has this particular passage to quote. Every culture on Tamriel remembers the dragon break in some fashion. To most, it is a spiritual anguish that they cannot account for. Now, this is talking about the Middle Dawn, granted, but I think something similar happened for the Red Moment for the Battle of Red Mountain. Michael Kirkbride did note on Reddit once that he thought it was weird that there were no stories of the battle from a Cyrodiilic perspective, almost as if we should expect one. If Dragon Breaks as a whole do leave some sort of imprint on the cultures of Tamriel, some kind of psychic shock or something, then the Red Moment would surely register in some fashion for all of them. And that's the Battle of Red Mountain. It's a dragon break, it's an event affecting many cultures across Tamriel, and it's an event that created three gods, possibly four. And I do hope that it's also an insight into the game design philosophy in the Elder Scrolls. I do hope you've enjoyed this ramble through the various accounts of the battle with me. And if you like what you're hearing, please do leave a rating wherever you're listening. And you can also support the show on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash written in uncertainty. Patrons get access to all my content a few days early, as well as exclusive access to the notes that I make for each episode. You can also leave me a one-off tip at Ko-fi by going to ko-fi.com forward slash Aramithius. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Aramithius and just dropping a tip in the jar. And if you want some other great stuff to listen to, check out the other Robots Radio Network podcasts that are out there. We've had some great recent additions to the network. I can definitely recommend checking out the Elder Scrolls Lorecast in particular if you want to go over some of the foundations of the lore. And before we finish, I've got a quick email I want to discuss. I had a fantastic email last week from Rachel who's asked a lot of questions about Sophosil and the Scribe. Thank you ever so much for your email, Rachel. It was fantastic to hear from you. Rachel basically asked four questions. One, who is the Scribe? Two, what's the significance of the different names as both Sophosil and Set are both used in the text? Three, when is the text written, as it seems like Sothosil is withdrawing from being a god, which would be a weird thing for him to do so far in advance of Degothur's return? And four, is there any significance to the author's initials being ASV? I don't really have a good in-universe answer for who the scribe is. We don't really know enough about either them or Set to formulate a theory. Rachel did raise the point that it could be Vivek, but I'm not totally convinced and also she did point out that it was possibly the tribunal particularly given the ASV initials as we said and Set is also described as being a child shared by many fathers and the scribe seems to be numbered among those which essentially would suggest that if ASV was the tribunal it would suggest that the tribunal is essentially co-created it's an extension of what we see in the 36 lessons as we have the 36 lessons saying that Vivek was essentially brought into being by Sophosil and Almalexia. So maybe this text is suggesting that the whole tribunal created each other. 
And there's also part of me that thinks that the scribe is Lawrence Schick. There's talk about leaving and there's lines like she belongs to them with the she being Nern, which really echoes Lawrence's sentiments in his farewell letter, which has lines like the law is yours directed at the fans. This puts a different spin on Set being a child shared by many fathers. From this angle, which breaks the fourth wall, the many fathers could just be the dev team writing the law. There are lots of little nods like that throughout the text that I frankly can't stop seeing whenever I read it, and it makes coming up with in-universe alternatives a little bit difficult for me if I'm honest. The significance of the use of Set and Sothacil, particularly the line and I must leave whether I wish to or not, said Set, if only so Sothacil can remain, I think points to Sothacil being both an idea and a city as well as a person. Set is possibly talking about sacrificing his self in order to preserve his city and the idea of what Sothacil is, a great god of the Dunma people. It kind of makes sense to me if you reflect on how you actually see Set in The Elder Scrolls Online. He's not particularly godly, he's quite humble, he's uncertain and regretful in quite a few ways. He's very, very mortal. And on reflection, that might well be what Set is talking about in regard to his leaving. The person must die so that the myth in the city can live on. The ASV thing, unless the scribe is the tribunal in some way, just strikes me as a nod to Alm Sivi without much other substance behind it. And that's all I have on that one. Again, thank you so much for your email, Rachel. It was good to read through it. Um, I do need to do a full cast on set so I can really get my teeth into it and the other stuff about him. And in the meantime, Matthew, this is your invitation to flood the Written Uncertainty Discord with all of the ideas you have about that text. I know that you've been very interested in that one. And that's it for this week. Join me next week when I'll be going over the next part of the monomyth, the Okudan tale, Satakal the Worldskin. Until then, this podcast remains a letter written in uncertainty. You've been listening to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast written and presented by Aramithius and a proud member of the Robots Radio Podcast Network. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glembotsky and Jeremy Saul. Check out Jan's work at SoundCloud under Songs from the Lost Land and Jeremy's Northerner Diaries is available for purchase and on YouTube. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Sebastian Azar. And I'm inviting you to the Hidden Pixels podcast, a show exploring those gaming stories you might have missed on your first playthrough, whether it's a side character's dark past or a small event that changed the entire fictional universe, we want to explore with gamers and story lovers alike. So join us every two weeks for the Hidden Pixels podcast. And if you like what you heard, subscribe and leave us a review. We appreciate all of your feedback and we can't wait to share these stories with you. Thanks.